It's a trend. COVID got people to start fucking horses. <laughs> Something. I was on TikTok while I was smoking the other day. Because, I don't know, it's nice when you're smoking, like, just watching, like, dumb videos. Yeah, I actually just... It's funny because I... TikTok used to be fucking... I think it was called, like, Bit Lee or something. Like, it used to be called a different app back in the day. Mm -hmm. But its whole gimmick was, like... The gimmick was that you could make videos and edit them for a social media thing and put, like real music yeah. behind your shit and now it's like obviously evolved into tiktok and like what it is but like because i just i was like fuck it i haven't made ours yet um yeah i haven't made ours yet and i was like all right i might as well just make one personal to start figuring out how to fucking work <laughs> it got on there and it was like i was trying to make it and it was saying that my password was wrong i was like i don't even have an account i was like what the fuck and then I fucking just I went in, changed my password, and I was like, went in, and I have three videos that I'm that I posted way back of like Spitz performing from like years ago, and it's just like that app just like yeah. updated to what it is now. And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, I mean that really was what it was, just like people uh, to do like dances and stuff. Which is, like, I might be wrong like on what it was called. Focused. I really, I think it was bit, because uh, it, it was like B-I-T dot I-L-Y. That sounds familiar. Yeah, like bit I L E or something. I don't know how they. I don't think it was bit I love you, obviously. Like, but, mm -hmm. but yeah, now people just like, like anything you could find on YouTube is on TikTok now, basically. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, it's I just that see it's all just sorts like, of, like ghost hunter ones and stuff, or like cooking video ones. Like, it's just a crazy time for like for the internet, man. Like these kids are like monetizing. They're like in high school monetizing. Not just that, but also, like, we'll just take that a step further and just say how kids are able to monetize. There's, like, fucking the NCAA made, like, new rules and shit like that for, like, eligibility for, ki for like, kids and, like, what they can do. So, like, I've seen videos online of this fucking, high, like, it's, like, top high school prospect that's worth $8 million. <laughs> it's, like, he's just 17 slinging a football worth legit $8 fucking million. Like... <laughs> Motherfuckers are already willing to pay you that much just to fucking get you to come over. Like, and what? You haven't even, like, played professionally. Yeah! Like, yeah, dude! Don't get me wrong, he's a stud. Well, yeah, like, he's, he's fucking, doing good, but you've yeah, just been playing just, high school ball. Yeah, it's just so fucking wild, man. Like, <laughs> even so, like, I know there's, ch there's also, like, very, like, smart, like, high school aged kids that are, like, really making a lot of money on the stock market, too. Like, they're just smart. Like, you know, they they watch it they just it's just like what they do there's just like literally millionaire billionaire maybe not billionaire but millionaire fucking like high school students it's fucking why and there's not aside from the ones that like just get it from their parents like yeah. there's actually kids out here hustling and like make shit ton of money while they're in high school and it's like holy fuck and here we are and here we are sitting in my room still fucking haven't made a buck haven't made a buck I mean, it's not, like, a good example of it, but that kid from Avalde that shot all those kids, like, he just worked at Wendy's and, like, saved up, like, four grand to buy all those guns and everything. Yep. It's crazy. Hmm. I don't even remember why I brought TikTok up now. Sorry. That's why. You were getting high scrolling through TikTok. Yeah, I, was, I saw something specific, but I don't remember now. Damn. <laughs> I gotta find your profile and start following you. 
Oh, I haven't posted anything. Yeah, but <coughs> if you like something, hopefully it'll show up on my shit then, so I can see it. <laughs> it is the weird, like, TikTok is, like, so heavily, like, algorithm-based. Like, yeah. I try not to interact with anything, really. Like, ah, fair enough. Just so, like, it stays kind of blank. Yeah. Neutral for different shit. It really does fucking take you down that rabbit hole sometimes. I woke up at like 2.30 this morning with like the worst fucking headache. I felt so sick from it. Sucks so bad. It was only behind my left eye. Like it literally, yeah. like, literally felt like something was like inside my eye. Like a needle or something. I don't know. It just fucking, it was crazy. It hurt so bad. Gotta love it. <laughs> God damn it. Pappy's out of state. Logan being responsible. Uh, I do have one video today, too, at some point. Yeah. What the fuck was that? I really don't know. Like, I wish I remembered now. Got <laughs> <laughs> uh, a tall boy, Crappy though. old tall boy open. That'll get the brain juices flowing. Yeah. That'll get you giggling. Now I just need Toad when you go play Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> Take old Greeny out and go around town. Never again. <laughs> Damn Toad. Played one giant fucking one giant game of leapfrog <laughs> or frogger. I haven't even played Pokemon Go. I live across like the best, like from the best spot in town to play it, and I don't even. You said that that one time. Yeah, whatever. It's not Crusader Kings. <laughs> <laughs> I've been wanting to get better at Europa. I really have. Yeah. Just so much. Pretty sure I have them downloaded. I just, I'm so terrible at them that I just lose so much motivation. I just, I always feel so scared to like do things in that game because I feel like anytime I just do something, I'm just gonna immediately explode. And then there's all like the past couple hours of the game gone. And I can just reload and not do that or just start over. Like, I see people online who play, like, like Stars Castile, and they can just, like, personal union, like, everybody, like, across the Northern Hemisphere. It's just, how, how do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> how do you do that? Because <laughs> you can get, like, you can, like, royal marriage a bunch of people, but you can only have so many diplomatic relations at once before it starts, like, giving you negative effects. Yeah. And then, like, your tech starts flagging behind. And then, like, if your tech starts lagging behind, you just get fucked later. <laughs> See, that's what I mean. Like, I'm so, like, <laughs> I'm so lost when it comes to that <laughs> shit. I'd never, I would never be able to put that together. Well, you basically, like, 
like you know how in Crusader Kings you like your character that you play as is like your ruler, and then like you go down through it. In Europa, you play the country instead of the ruler, where like you have a ruler. Your country has a ruler, obviously, and that determines like how many, how much diplomatic, military, and administrative power you get. And those are basically like the three main things in the game. Like mm-hmm. you spend those to tech up, and like you spend them to like just do different things like throughout the game, like just different amounts of that. Okay. And you also have like gold and manpower and stuff, but those are kind of like secondary resources compared to like the administrative and diplomatic power and stuff. Uh, but yeah, so like when your heir, like when your king dies or whatever, it just goes to the next person. They have different stats, but that's pretty much it. You don't like explode or anything. Yeah. But like if you have a disputed succession, someone can come in and like royal marry you if you accept it anyways. But like if you're like the, like you can do that to the AI, and then. Uh, if like their king dies and the dispute, the succession is disputed, then you basically just get a personal union over them. So basically, they're like your vassal. Like you don't directly control them, but they work for you basically. Like, they, <laughs> they can't, they can't. And like if you go into a war, they're coming to the war with you and everything. You just don't directly control them. And then eventually, you can like integrate them into you. I just don't get how some people do it. I've been watching this guy play a lot of Hearts of Iron 2. <coughs> which is like the World War II version of Europa. Like, I think it starts in like 1936 or something like that. I think I might have that. I'm not sure. It comes with it comes bundled with them a lot. I think I, I don't know if I have it or if I've just seen it, like you said, like in bundles or something like that with it. I've never played it, but I mean, it looks cool. World War Two style would be kind of cool, and it's like the same thing where like you could play as Germany and then you can like immediately oust Hitler and stuff if you wanted. <laughs> Check. <laughs> but what's up? It's another good episode of Room to Talk. I'm Bud Walker, Mike Klosky, and that's it. God damn. <laughs> <laughs> It's been a while, but fuck. It took us, what, 52 episodes to get back to just us? Yeah. <laughs> it took us 57 episodes, just fucking the original two. <laughs> fucking Pappy's out of state, Logan's being responsible. I feel so big in here. Yeah, you got that whole couch. Yeah, I got this whole couch. Like, you just sprawl out if you wanted to. Like, lay back and just move the mic over. Yeah. <laughs> Do what you want. <laughs> What we got this week, Mike? Oh, you know, we got our news stories. And we got a couple, like, history stories. I don't know. And they're not really related, I guess, but, like, they're just interesting. Just fun little stories that you found. And, like, stuff that I never really knew about before either. Like, more incidents throughout the history of the world that are just funny, I guess, and interesting. Maybe not funny. Some of them aren't funny, but just, like, little lesser known events. Yeah, we have the Great Molasses Flood in Boston. The Great Molasses Flood. Uh, we have the Ludlow Massacre. Massacre. The what? The Ludlow Massacre. Ludlow Massacre. In Colorado. In Colorado. It's pretty much like the same thing that happened at Blair Mountain, but yeah, you saying yeah, you had mentioned that about that part. And then we have <laughs> Cor- Corporal Wooljack. Corporal Wooljack. A Polish corporal bear. <laughs> <laughs> The fucking pictures I have in the Discord make me laugh so bad. 
I just like how they had to like they had to legitimately draft him into their into the Polish army. <laughs> like he had his own like serial number and like paybook and everything. Unreal. <laughs> I saw uh, Midsummer the other day. Even though it was like came out like a year or two ago. What's that? Midsummer. <laughs> it's a movie I want to watch tripping actually. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> Well, like, the whole time, like, the screen does, like, these weird, like, just, like, flashes randomly. But it's not, like, a flash. Like, different parts will, like, go out of focus or, like, kind of, like, shudder almost. Like, it's really weird. Like, it's meant to be, like, trippy, basically. Like, they, uh... <laughs> they, these, all these friends go to Sweden to, like, this, like, basically, like, really rural, like, community. Like, it's just, like, one big community that live all together. Because, like, one of their friends is, like, from that community. And, like, they have to go out on, like, a pilgrimage to, like, learn things and they come back. And so like he brought their friends with him. Like, as soon as they get there, they hand them like this mushroom tea, and they just start tripping basically. And the one lady like just lost her parents. That was pretty crazy. Like her sister, I guess. Uh, money. <laughs> but uh, yeah, her sister like basically killed herself and her parents by like closed the garage door, put hoses on, like, the cars, like, turned the cars on, ran one into the parents' bedroom where they were sleeping, like, duct taped the door shut, and then her, she just dug it right to her mouth and just oh, duct taped it oh, to her Jesus. mouth. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Ugh. Like, you don't see her doing that. You see, like, when, like, the cops, like, when, like, the rescuers yeah. and everything find her, and, like, they pan the camera up, and, like, you see the, it follows the hoses from the cars up through the house, up the stairs, you see into the bedroom, and then you just pans to her, she's just sitting there with, like, a hose taped to her mouth. <laughs> Yeah, so, like, the whole time she's there, she's, like, trying to deal, like, the main character, she's, like, trying to deal with, like, her parents and, like, her sister dead and shit, and then she's, like, tripping on top of that, which doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> and she's tripping. And, like, weird stuff just starts happening, and, like, you know, like, standard, like, horror movie stuff, like, people start getting, yeah. like, taken out, and, like, they're basically, like, a cult and stuff. <laughs> Apparently, they only live for, like, 72 years. Like, they break it up into, like, four seasons of their life. Like, first, like, season is, like, spring, and they're growing. Then they have to go out and, like, learn from the world and come back. And then they work, and then they teach. And then once they hit 72, they just kill themselves, basically. They just, like, jump off a cliff. And, like, the guy who did it, he jumped off a cliff, but he landed, like, on his legs. And, like, you see everything. Like, he landed on his legs. And so he's just, yeah. like, laying there, just like, uh. And, they, and, like, the whole time you're wondering, like, why does that guy have a big hammer? And you just see him walk over with the big hammer and just... Oh. <laughs> 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 the one guy like pees on like their ancestral tree or whatever like so like after those people like jump off the cliff they like burn them and get their ashes and they like sprinkle over the ancestral tree and like that guy didn't know about it so he just takes a piss on it like, everyone gets like pissed at him and stuff like that <laughs> this one girl like leads him into the woods basically like under the pretense of like they're gonna fuck and they just like skin him alive basically then you see like some dude like wearing his like skin suit oh jesus yeah I mean it's pretty fucked up They put the one guy, like, and, like, the whole time you're seeing, like, cart, like, tapestries and stuff on the wall of, like, the different rituals and stuff, but, like, they don't know that. Mm. And, like, one of them, you see, like, a bear, like, in a, in a fire, and, like, at the end, they take, like, one of, like, the guy who was, the, like, the main girl's boyfriend was kind of, like, a dick the whole time, and, uh, they put, they, like, they de-gut a bear, put him in the bear with, like, its face, like, where the bear's face is. And then they just, like, put him in this big house. And they, like, gave him some drug or something that, like, paralyzed him so that he couldn't move or anything. And they just, like, lit the place up with, like, the other sacrifices that they had. Well, he's in the bear? <laughs> yeah. He's, what? like, the main centerpiece. They put the bear, like, right in the middle. 
what and they the also fuck? take like two of their own community that just like volunteer to be sacrificed and they just go sit in the fire on some viking shit it was crazy oh yeah they uh they blood equaled some guy they like you don't see it, but like you see him like hanging up in like the chicken coop, yeah. and he has like the blood eagle and everything. Yeah. You see like his lungs still like breathing in and out. Like yeah, they like his eyes were just like replaced with flowers, basically. Whoa! And it was a cool movie. Definitely like it was trippy, and like I said, like the whole time like weird things are like flashing and stuff. Like the camera like goes out of focus for a second, comes back in like. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, and this creepy. She watches a whole bunch of creepy, weird murder shit too. <laughs> Always go down there. There's some fucking weird shit fucking playing. Someone dying. Someone fucking. Yeah, I was watching the John Wayne Gacy tapes this morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's the rope trick. <laughs> <laughs> What you got for news stories this week? So, 109 live animals found in woman's luggage in a massive airport wildlife trafficking bust. 109. Damn. That's a lot of animals to put yeah. in a suitcase. Obviously very small. Eh, kind of. Uh, so, two women have been arrested in Thailand for allegedly attempting to smuggle at least 109 live animals in their luggage, including porcupines, armadillos, turtles, chameleons, and snakes. Whoa! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. As they tried to board a flight to India. Uh, the incident occurred at Bangkok's Suvarnabhumi Airport, as two Indian women tried to make their way through airport security when officials spotted a couple of suspicious items in their suitcases <laughs> following a routine x-ray Just inspection. a couple. <laughs> Upon further investigation, authorities discovered a total of at least 109 animals, including two white porcupines, two armadillos, 35 turtles, 50 chameleons, and 20 snakes. I have some of the pictures. Holy fuck, I was was wondering what... Yeah, so like two white porcupines, 50 turtles... Armadillo. Oh, 35 turtles, sorry. 50 chameleons, and 20 snakes, and two armadillos. (laughs) And a whole bucket of turtles. Wow. And, like, I'm assuming she had them in those, like, plastic containers to, like, they didn't, like, get to each other, I'm assuming. Maybe. Hopefully. So, I mean, you got 20 snakes and 50 chameleons. Like, the snakes are probably going to eat the chameleons. Yeah. Unless the chameleons were food for the snakes. What? <laughs> <laughs> that bucket of turtles is just awesome. <laughs> it's just a whole bucket of turtles. <laughs> Uh, the two women were arrested and taken into custody and charged under Thailand's Wildlife Protection and Preservation Act. And apparently, uh, wildlife smuggling is the fourth largest illegal trade worldwide after arms, drug, and human trafficking. <laughs> Fair enough. And from 2011-2020, they say that there was 141 wildlife seizure incidents involving 146 different wildlife species at eight, India, 18 of India's major airports. And over 70,000 wild animals were seized. Damn. 70,000. Over 141 different incidents. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, this bitch on one incident just had 109. She racked it. She racking them up. (laughs) Sure, she doesn't have 110 just stashed somewhere. Did they check her pussy? <laughs> how many how many feelings you got up there, lady? Man, we're gonna have to come over here, squat and cough. 
We know you're hiding the animals in there. Don't take Frederick. <laughs> That's just my personal rat that lives in my pussy. <laughs> <laughs> That's my husband. <laughs> <laughs> we were married. So a Florida man posed as, Di- as a Disney World cast member and steals a ten thousand dollar R two D two droid. That's what this is. <laughs> he posed as a worker? Yeah. Why does he look so familiar? Because <laughs> he looks kind of like Nick. He looks like Wreck-It Ralph. <laughs> he does kind of look like Wreck-It Ralph. <laughs> I've never even seen that movie. That's just like what he looks like. Give him red hair. And, like, yeah. de-age him 20 years? Yeah. This is awesome, though. This is a great story. That's a, that looks like an awesome R2-D2 replica. I just, I don't get his, like, uh, okay, so we'll get into it. Uh, a Central Florida man was arrested after a deputy said he posed as a Walt Disney World cast member and took a Star Wars R2-D2 droid in the hopes that Disney security would hire him. That's what I don't get. I, I mean, he probably got caught and just made up an excuse. That's like, what I think yeah, happened. Yeah. <laughs> David Proudfoot, 44 of Kissimmee. Shut up. What? His name is Proudfoot. David Proudfoot. David Proud. He's a hobbit? I guess. What? He's facing grand theft charges and an obstruction of. Ju- uh, uh, charge of obstruction by false information. The Orange County Sheriff's Office says on March on May 31st, deputies were called to the Swan Reserve Hotel by Disney security. When they arrived, they made contact with Proudfoot, who, sa- who they say was wearing beige work pants, an orange work vest, and a Disney name tag. He reportedly identified himself as David Rogers at first, and he said he worked in the receiving division at the Yacht Club Resort. <laughs> the affidavit states that Disney security stopped Proudfoot because he was seen by hotel security pushing a cart on the property, and it looked suspicious. The officer helped, offered to help Proudfoot with the cart and says that he appeared confused as how to get the, to the loading dock and what the hotel's proper procedures are. That's when, that's when deputies were called to the hotel. Proudfoot reportedly told deputies that part of his job is to move items from one location to the other, and that his boss's name is James McDaniels. Security says they have no record of anyone named David Rogers working for Disney, and that McDaniels works in California. <laughs> so he, I guess he did know somebody that worked there, but... I guess... I wonder if they, like, contacted that guy in California. He's like, oh, I don't fucking know him. A deputy escorted Proudfoot to the Yacht Club Resort to retrieve his belongings and driver's license from the employee lockers, but says Proudfoot appeared to be lost and confused and failed to open the locker. The deputy then report- reportedly noticed that Proudfoot had a wallet on him and asked if he had his ID in the wallet. Then he, shout- then he showed him his ID, which revealed his real name. <laughs> it's like you take it that far and you're just gonna be like okay mm-hmm. <laughs> just give up like you're probably getting arrested you might as well just make them arrest you and get your name that way uh, yeah, yeah he reportedly admitted to moving the R2-D2 uh, from the third floor of the hotel to a quote unknown location and a game machine because he had an application for a security job pending at Walt Disney World and wanted to, quote, show weakness and security of the report resorts in hope of securing a better-paying job at Walt Disney World. He said that... Uh, the deputy said that Proudfit told him he had no intention of taking items off the property. So, I mean... Classic. Maybe he was trying to get a job? 
Like maybe he did have a make a move. <laughs> you just gotta make a move. It's like Tommy. <laughs> when you, yeah, when you just want to get a job, you just gotta fuck over your fucking boss real quick. Make him be like, "Hey, man, I can do some shit." <laughs> well, I mean, there's there are like like the hackers and stuff that like find back doors into places, and they're just be like, "Well, you want to work for us?" Yeah, but I feel like it's a little different, like especially oh, it's a little different in person, and especially if you get caught. <sighs> hmm. Like, I feel like if he would have been like to his car with it and been like. Hey, like, I just stole this from you guys, like, yada, yada, yada. I mean, his situation, I think, is separate than, like, the idea of what yeah, I think you're saying. Like, it, like this is obviously, that's just an excuse. He was try, he was definitely trying to steal that R2-D2. Well, maybe he did have an, uh, like, uh, like an application. Ap- like, why wouldn't you just apply? Well, no, that's what I mean. Maybe he did have an application, but he said he wanted to use, like, to show weaknesses in their security. Yeah, but that's just... That makes no sense. Like, <laughs> even if he is serious, it's just not... It doesn't make sense. And it's like, you don't think Walt, like Walt Disney World has a camera to cover, like, literally every square inch of that place? Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't gonna steal it, man. It's just, just in my was, pocket. I just thought it was really cool. Yeah, I just wanted to walk around with it for a little bit, you know. I mean, it's like those, it's like I own it, but you know, I I, I don't. Having one of those R two D two droids would be pretty cool. Yeah, it definitely would. It'd be sweet if we had one sitting here in the corner somewhere. I want. I really want to go to like the Harry Potter world, or yeah, that'd be really that's cool. always looked fucking awesome. Just like sitting in Diagon Alley, having butter beer or something at the at the uh. Uh, at the three broomsticks I saw that the Like the wands you can buy They just work on like Infrared light So mm. you can just Like I see people That like just make their own And they just like Take them there And like do all this stuff with it <laughs> Cause it's literally just, It's just an infrared right you, Like light You just shine it at it That's awesome <laughs> I have one up there It doesn't light up Or anything It's just the ones That you can get at Walmart My sister got me one It's Neville Longbottoms Ooh Yeah The boy who almost lived the boy who did live. Oh, I mean, he did live, but he was, I guess, the boy who was almost the boy who lived. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, do you think Neville's parents would have sacrificed themselves like Harry's did? They did, didn't they? I mean, before. Wait, weren't they already dead? No, they're not dead, they're just in, okay, there's a point, there's, there's a point in one of the books where they go, they're in some... They're in some wing at the Ministry of Magic, and it's somewhat of, like, the infirmary, and I'm pretty sure Neville's parents are in there, because they're crazy. I was like, I knew they were, like, tortured for, like, a yeah. long time with, with yeah. the Cruciatus curse. And in the movies, just because it's been a while since I've read, like, the later books, in the movies, Sirius says that they suffered a fate worse than death, and, what it, and like, Bellatrix tortured them until they went crazy so they're in this like i'm pretty sure it's said that they're in this wing of the ministry of magic and the magical dementia ward well i'm pretty sure in the books like the reason why i remember all this shit is in the books i think gilderoy lockhart's still there Hmm. like he they can never like undo his obliviate that he did to himself so he's kind of like crazy too because he doesn't remember who he is at all so they have him there too yeah he was like I, I'm pretty sure I just mentioned that. It might have been in the fifth book or something. I could be getting this all wrong. That's probably the one. Like, I mean, that's where they're, yeah. like, going through the ministry, like, really yeah. fucking exploring the place. Yeah. And I think that one part is, like, they... That's what happens. They go to the one, the one wing, and, like, he mentions about how Neville's parents are there. And Gilderoy's there. 
I hope I have that right. <clears throat> we always come back to Harry Potter. The newest book in my <sighs> one series came out the other day. I had to binge that. It was good. What was it? Uh, it well, the, the series is just called He Who Fights With Monsters. Like, it's not really, like, each book is just, like, one, two, three. Mm. But uh, book six came out the other day, and it was pretty good. Nice. I started reading Ben. Uh, because it's on, like, Royal Road, which is just, like, a website where people, like, just, like, write things and, like, post it chapter by chapter. Mm. So, it's, like, he's not, like... I guess he is, like, a published author now, but, like, he started out just, like, writing this online and everything and got, like, really popular and stuff, so he started, like, releasing the chapters of his books and stuff. Oh, that's cool. And, like, I found him as, like, the books and stuff, and now I caught up to the least in one I started reading online then, like, past where the newest ones are. Because, mm-hmm. like, when he releases them then, like, an audiobook or, like, paperback or whatever, he takes the chapters off offline then. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. What's, uh, what's it about? Well, it's it's a lit RPG, if you know what that is. It's, like, books, but with, like, game elements, I guess. Okay. With, like, they have, like, stats. and Literature like, RPG. Yeah, okay. like, that's what it stands for. Yeah. It was, like, this one's kind of, like, a toned-back version of it, where they don't really, like, get, go deep into, like, numbers and stuff. Just, like, it'll be, like, mana cost moderate and, like, stuff like that. Okay. Well, like, some of them actually have, like, hard numbers where, like... Is... is what is it? Ready Player One? Is that kind of like? Kind of, I would say. I've never seen it. I just, I, I, I don't. I'm... Well, like a main thing with like, like lit RPGs is like the progression, where it's like, like usually either like a system enters like Earth or like a person gets like sucked to like another world where mm-hmm. like magic is, and like they like they like they legitimately like level up and stuff. Interesting. Like they get like XP, like actually, and like stuff like that. But uh, this one is, like, a toned-back version of it, kind of, where, like, there's no, like, XP or, like, actual, like, hard numbers and stuff, but people still have, like, powers. And, like, since he got stuck to a different world, he became what's called, like, an outworlder, and they have, like, special abilities to help them, like, survive in the new world. And, like, one of his was basically, like, making, like, a game system interface for him. So, like, like everyone else in the world doesn't have that, but, like, it's just, like, his special ability, kind of. Huh. To, like, help him, like, understand and, like, make sense of the new world. Yeah. Interesting. It does sound cool. uh, After book three, he ends up going back to, like, Earth and stuff. And then he finds out, like, magic was, like, here the whole time. He didn't think it was, but it was, like, hidden and stuff like that. Hmm. Like, he kind of, like, brings that out and, like, helps his family and stuff. And at the end of the sixth book, he goes back to, like, the other world then. Hmm. And so that's pretty much where I'm at. Wow. There's, like, a lot of stuff that goes on, and, like, you find out that, like, the two worlds are, like, connected because, like, great astral beings are, like, fucking with shit and stuff, but... There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot in between there, huh? Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's six books in between. <laughs> uh, so many good books. Yeah, there really is. Did you see those over there? Yeah. The ones that say Bachman? You know who that is? Mm-mm. Stephen King. Just like under a different name. Yeah, before he, was, I guess before he became big, he wrote like five novels under that pseudonym, <laughs> and uh, I was reading it in the first couple pages of the top paperback book right there, and he he like goes into explaining it, but I never finished it because I had to do stuff this morning. It said something where like people kept asking me like, why did I write these under a pseudonym? And he's like, I haven't really honestly thought of a really satisfactory answer for it yet. It's like he probably just did it because he wanted to like. Oh, that, that book series I was just talking about, he wrote it under the name of Shirtaloon, 
Like, that was, like, his name on, like, the website or whatever. Yeah. So, like, the books would say that until, like, I think it was, like, book four or five. He finally, like, put his real name on him. That's funny. <laughs> Shirtaloon. Yeah. So, like, written by Shirtaloon. Well, just like fucking Mac Miller had, like, his other, uh, what was it, Larry Fisherman? Yeah. Yeah, it's just funny how people have the different pseudonyms. I mean, fuck, but Bud Walker. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's so funny, like, going back and listening to the edits of the, of the episodes, because, uh... I always, I always, every single time, like, come in as Bud Walker and sign off <laughs> as Bud Walker. But a few, depending on who's talking to me and who's, who's who's actually talking to me, like, directly, whether they call me Brad or fucking Bud or not. <laughs> but it's funny because I just thought, like, because I've always come on and gone off as Bud and then people say Brad, so I've ever wondered if people are like, who the fuck are they talking about <laughs> when they listen to this shit? Context clues. Yeah. You want to go into another news story? Yeah. So, uh, a drunk mayor crashes car after meeting families of drunk driving victims. Psst. Yeah. Uh, it gets better. Just wait. Oh, how could it not get better? Residents are furious over an Australian mayor's drunk driving crash just one hour after she met with the families of drunk driving victims. Oh, my God. So, that means she had to be drunk at the meeting of drunk, like... No, 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 no. She could have 100%, like... I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. She could have 100% went to that event, left, and had that shit, like, stashed in her car. The second it, she left, yeah, it's like, as soon as you, it's like, yo, I got this one thing. I'll stay sober <laughs> until this thing's over. And then as soon as I'm good, I'm going to my fucking car. Not even going to wait till I get home. She's yeah. going to fucking pound Yeah, her. she probably had, like, a little fucking, a whole fucking... Well, she admitted to drinking several glasses of wine before crashing her car into a tree. So where's that? I mean, I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to act like... But either way, she could have went to that event not drunk. And then it immediately ended and she's like, I need several glasses of wine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm going to That's what I'm gonna go with. But. Uh, she said she made a serious error of judgment and was deeply regretful after her drunk driving crash. And she stepped down from the Brisbane Olympics 2032 board. However, she is resisting calls for her resignation. I made a mistake. I will learn from that mistake, and I will continue to serve my community as I have for the last 18 years. She said in a statement to local outlets. <laughs> I think your card needs pulled, lady. Yeah. No. How many times the last 18 years have you been driving around drunk? Yeah. Like what? You can't just like you. You can't just say that. I made a mistake. Yeah, a bunch <laughs> of people make mistakes. Fucking, but out, bitch. Well, shortly before the accident, Williams had declared, quote, we need to clean up the drunk driving. <laughs> she called for tougher youth sentencing, campaigning with the families of a couple who was killed along with their unborn child by an intoxicated teenager in January of 2021. I, I don't think tougher youth sentencing is the answer to that. And the best thing is, like, she hasn't even been charged with anything. Of course. Yeah. Why, why would she? Why the fuck would she? She hosted a video meeting with the families of drunk driving victims. One of the participants was Judy Lindsay, whose daughter Haley was killed by a drunk driver 10 years ago. Lindsay told 7 News the mayor called her on Friday night to apologize about the, cross, the crash. In response, Lindsay said, We trusted you, and you let us down. You're, you're the one supposed to be helping us to raise awareness, and you let us all down. Ooh. Yeah, it's like she's specifically campaigning with families of drunk driving crashes. And like, then and just drunk and driving. Yeah, dude. Like, it's just like. It, it's so wild that that's like the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. Like, people really fucking. 
go out of their way to campaign like you said and like advocate so strongly for it and literally 60 minutes after <laughs> yeah. boom like hypocrite <laughs> Redland counselor Paul Bishop, who said on Facebook that his son had witnessed the police and an ambulance arrive just minutes after an alleged intoxicated driver crossed four lanes of traffic and ran off the road into a tree. Day A day later, his son realized it was the mayor, quote, whose reckless choice could have changed both our family's lives forever, Bishop said. The counselor condemned Williams' illegal and dangerous behavior, and police have not charged Williams and no bystanders were injured in the crash. Like, at least no one was hurt, but still. But that's probably why she's not getting... Like, it's unfortunate, but the only way that she probably would, like, definitely get trucking charges is if she would have hurt someone. But since she didn't, she's a public figure, and she's probably going to get off with it. And it's it's fucked up, man. Uh, also, this article, like, I saw something that, like, I never knew before, but apparently in March, Tennessee became the first state to pass a law holding drunk drivers accountable for child support after a parent is killed. I did read that, actually, months ago. I remember reading that, or that specifically, because I was like, "That's fucking. That's that's a decent law." Yeah. Like, I mean, that, that that's a sense. fucking decent law right yeah. there. It sucks, but yeah, you shouldn't Don't fucking. Yeah, like, fuck your fucking cash, bro. <laughs> Nothing compared to like what you did. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing compared to what you did. <laughs> oh, I thought this next one was pretty cool. Uh. A woman was rescued from a hostage situation after sending a note begging for help to a restaurant through Grubhub. Oh, yeah, I saw this one on uh, on the internet, too. So, a woman was rescued from a hostage situation in Bronx after she sent a note to a local restaurant through Grubhub order asking them to call the police. The Chipper Truck Cafe in Yonkers, New York, wrote on his Facebook page that it helped save a woman from a five-hour hostage situation Wednesday morning at 5 a.m., she ordered a delivery through Grubhub to a restaurant and added this note. The restaurant wrote on the Facebook page alongside the photo of the note she wrote. It said, please call police. He's going to call me when you deliver. Come with the come with the cops. Please don't make it obvious. The woman wrote uh, in, in the additional instructions section of her order. Smart. Yeah. I mean, it's something like... Uh, CBS News reported the victim had ordered an Irish breakfast sandwich and a cheeseburger to accompany her alarming note. Uh, and the cafe wrote, our staff uh, responded immediately and called the police, and she got saved. A spokesperson for uh, the NYPD says officers arrived to help the woman at 6.20. And police said at 6.27, a 32-year-old man was arrested and charged with rape, strangulation, criminal sex act, unlawful imprisonment, menacing, assault, criminal possession of a weapon, and sexual abuse. Jesus. Yeah, so this woman definitely went through it. Uh, Alice... Bermerho, the restaurant's owner, told CBS News she's proud that her staff did the right thing by calling the police and potentially saved a life. And in response, Grubhub has offered the restaurant owners uh, $5,000 to invest in their business as a way of recognizing her and Alicia for their quick thinking. Damn. Yeah. I'm glad nothing like that ever happened to us. <laughs> Jesus. Imagine a KFC or something like that and be like, call the cops, I'm getting hurt. I just be like... <laughs> Just breathe. Okay. <laughs> hey, Lindsay. <laughs> I need to go to the office real quick. <laughs> get that off the get that off the menu. Get that off the screen right now. <laughs> What's that say in the comments? <laughs> get that off the screen. <laughs> yeah, dude, that'd be fucking wild. But it is smart. 
It's smart. So much technology nowadays in this, like, just so much technology nowadays. Like, you, like that's fucking crazy. Yeah. So the next one we have is a protester with a flamethrower during the Roe v. Wade protest. Uh, this is what I've been waiting for. And, like, it looks like he just has, like, a lighter and an axe can. Okay. Okay. That's an... Uh, I was ready for it because I wanted to see how it was actually used. And we have a video. Oh, yeah. You see it. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Yeah, it's just like a hairspray and a lighter. Yeah. Yeah, he's just, yeah, aerosol can't, but he, he went right for that cop's head, though. He I was mean, like, shh. Well, they're charging him with, uh, oh, yeah. intent to commit murder. Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah. They don't play with that shit. Yeah, there was not much, like, actually in the news article. It was just pretty much that video. Yeah. Not they're charging him with that. That yeah. makes sense. Uh, yeah, don't do that. I mean, teach their own, but we're not advocating. Yeah, I mean, they're just going to beat you anyways and then put you away for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so this next one was kind of cool. Uh, a mystery rocket crashes into the moon and leaves baffling double crater, NASA says. So a mystery rocket body crashed into the moon and left a double crater, which is an even bigger mystery to scientists. Uh, and NASA said that means it wasn't your average rocket which they reported in a June 24th news release. So far, none of Earth's space-exploring nations have taken credit for the crash. And NASA says astronomers spotted the rocket on a collision course with the moon last year and were waiting to see what might happen. It hit March 4th and apparently put on quite of a show. Surprisingly, the crater is actually two craters, an eastern crater 18 meters in diameter and superimposed on a western crater about 16 meters in diameter. Uh, NASA says the double crater was unexpected and no other rocket body impacts on the moon has created double craters. This is the first time. Hmm. At least 47 NASA rocket bodies have created spacecraft impacts on the moon, according to a 2016 data survey. Uh, and the new- NASA's Lunar Re- Reconnaissance Orbiter spotted the double crater site near the Hertzsprung Crater, a complex impact crater on the far side of the moon. And the double crater may indicate that the rocket had large masses at each end, which is not the norm, NASA says. Spent rockets typically have a heavy motor at one end and a lighter, empty fuel tank on the other. Uh, and NASA didn't really, like, offer an explanation for, like, what this could have been. It's like, hey, we know this. Have fun with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they say, since the origin of the rocket body remains uncertain, the double nature of the crater may indicate its identity. Yeah, no fucking... Donations are taking credit for it, said. <laughs> when, like, I mean, if it was, if it actually is, like, a spent, like, rocket, like, it would have the engine on the bottom and then just, like, a hollow fuel cell above it. True. Unless, like, there was a payload on top that got it, like, unless there was still, like, the capsule on top or something that got out of control. Like, it, like, if Russia or China sent someone up in space or something like that, just fucking boop, right into the moon. Oh, I can never think of it was like Kerbal Space Program. And like Jebediah Kerber just floating through space forever. Who? Oh. The Kerbal yeah. Space Program. <laughs> Since Kerbals are plants, they can just subsist on sunlight. <coughs> <laughs> so you can just basically send them out into space forever. Cruel. 
I saw a thing where it was just like eventually in space, like the further you go ahead to like more like it's very like there's a point where you just can't go back like literally like you go so far in space (laughs) and technically time that like there's a certain threshold where eventually you're going so far so fast through space that you there's no chance of you actually making it back for some reason because you'd have I think it was because like since we're moving and everything like you'd have to be moving so fast that eventually you couldn't it was weird I don't know it was fucked up but it was like basically like eventually you can't come back (laughs) eventually like there's no hope of you ever making it back I saw uh, an article that said that some of the scientists from NASA that saw like the James Webb telescope pictures that like haven't been released yet that like it brought them to tears (laughs) what does that fucking mean well, I think it's just because, like, the high-depth, like, images that we can now get. Oh. Like, like, it's basically, like, it's the new Hubble telescope, but it's, like, a lot bigger than the Hubble telescope, so it can, like, see better and, like, get better images, and plus it's, like, 30 years newer. <laughs> so. Probably pretty good. Yeah, and they said, like, some of the pictures they got out of there, like, pretty cool. That's wild. Yeah. Uh, we should have them, like, by the end of the month or something like that, I think. Like, produce. we'll be able to see them? Yeah. Oh, wow. We'll have to keep and keep updated on that. Yeah. Should you want to get into the Great Molasses Flood? Let's get into the Great Molasses Flood. So the Great Molasses Flood, also known as the Boston Molasses Disaster, was a disaster that occurred on January 15th of 1919 in the North End neighborhood of Boston, Massachusetts. A large storage tank filled with 2.3 million U.S. gallons of molasses, weighing approximately 12 thousand tons burst <laughs> and the resorting wave of molasses rushed through the streets at an estimated 35 miles per hour killing 21 and injuring 150 holy fuck yeah dude the event entered local folklore and residents claimed for decades afterwards that the area still smelled of molasses on hot summer days <laughs> but yeah it's so like if you see that that other map picture that I brought up uh, that's just like some wreckage, but that see that circle at the top there? Mm-hmm. That's the area that like the most of the damage was in. Most. That's still a pretty decent. Well, like- yeah, the rest of the area around there was like flooded with like a foot or two of molasses, but like that was yeah. The rest of the area was where like most of the damage was. <laughs> oh my god. What was it like two million? Twelve thousand tons of molasses. Moving at a wave, moving at 35 miles per hour. Killed fucking 21 people? Dude. The disaster occurred at the Purity Distilling Company near Kenny Square. A considerable amount of molasses had been stored there by the company, which used the Harborside Commercial (laughs) Street Tank to offload molasses from ships and store for later transfer by the pipeline to the Purity Ethanol plant situated in Cambridge. The molasses tank stood 50 feet tall and 90 feet in diameter and contained as much as 2.3 million U.S. gallons. On January 15th of 1919, temperatures in Boston had risen to about 40 degrees Fahrenheit, climbing rapidly from the frigid temperatures of the preceding days. And the previous day, a ship had delivered a fresh load of molasses, which had been warmed to reduce its viscosity for transfer. Possibly due to thermal expansion of the older, colder molasses already inside the tank, the tank burst open and collapsed approximately at 12.30 p.m. Right after lunch. (laughs) 
Witnesses reported that they felt the ground shake and heard a roar as it collapsed, a long rumble similar to the passing of an elevated train. Others reported a tremendous crashing, a deep growling, quote, a thunderclap-like bang, and a sound like a machine gun as the rivet shot out of the tank. The density of molasses is about 1.4 tons per cubic meter, or 12 pounds per U.S. gallon. It's 40% more dense than water, resulting in the molasses having a great deal of potential energy. The collapse translated this energy into a wave of molasses 25 feet high at its peak. What? Moving at 35 miles an hour. 25 foot wave of molasses going 35 35 miles an hour. What? You get hit with that, you're done, bro. Yeah, you're drowning in fucking sugar. The wave was of sufficient force to drive steel panels off the burst tank against the grinders of the adjacent Boston Elevated Railway's Atlantic Avenue structure and tip a streetcar momentarily off Ellis tracks. Stephen Puello describes how nearly buildings were swept off their foundations and crushed. Several blocks were flooded to a depth of two to three feet. (laughs) Uh, He quotes a Boston Post report as molasses, waist-deep, covered the street and swirled and bubbled about the wreckage. Here and there struggled to form. Whether it was an animal or human being was impossible to tell. Only an upheaval, a thrashing about in the sticky mass showed where any life was. Horses died like so many flies on sticky flypaper. The more they struggled, the deeper in the mess they were ensnared. Human beings, men and women, suffered likewise. It's crazy. Oh my god. The Boston Globe reported that people, quote, were picked up by a rush of air and hurled many feet. Others had debris hurled at them from the rush of the sweet-smelling air. A truck was picked up and hurled into Boston Harbor. After the initial wave, the molasses became viscous, exacerbated by the cold temperatures, trapping those caught in the wave and making it even more difficult to rescue them. About 150 people were injured and 21 people and several horses were killed. Some were crushed and drowned by the molasses or by the debris that it carried within. The wounded, including people, horses, and dogs. Coughing fits became one of the most common ailments after the initial blast. Edwards Park wrote in one of the child's experiences in a 1983 article uh, for Smithsonian. Anthony D. Stazo, walking homeward with his sister from the Michelangelo School, was picked up by the wave and carried, tumbling on its crest, almost as though he was surfing. Then he grounded and the molasses rolled him like a pebble as the wave diminished. He heard his mother call his name and couldn't answer. His throat was so clogged with a smothering goo. He passed out, then opened his eyes to find three of his four sisters staring at him. <laughs> what? Riding the molasses wave like surfing. What? Yeah. <laughs> this is the fucking wildest thing. <laughs> like, what? Like, That's what a terrible day in a town. <laughs> I like, saw this and I was like, yeah, I gotta talk. About yeah. That. Like, what a terrible day in a town. I just, like. That was like the time when the well, not maybe quite like the time, actually not like the time at all, but like yeah, with twenty one people. Yeah, twenty as like <laughs> as to that, but like when the glue factory had that explosion. Oh yeah, which like it did like it wasn't like this where it affected the whole town, fucking twenty five foot glue thing, but it was like over people. Twenty five feet of glue. Yeah, it was like a big uh, in our local town. There's a glue factory nearby, and something happened. I don't exactly know what, but like. A big bubble of glue happened And it basically like fucking burst And got all over the place Like on fucking people's cars out in the parking lot Like over the plant and stuff It was like We we were really young when it happened 
Isn't that but like, like this around- mostly out of town though? Isn't it? Hmm? Isn't it mostly out of town? Or? Yeah, but close enough that like a chemical something like yeah. that when when chemicals are like out in the air and exposed like that, they're gonna. Well, there was that day we were working at Loot Crate and we had to leave because one of the train cars there was like spewing something. You said that before. I never. Uh, I must have been gone. Yeah, I think it was before. Or I wasn't there. I, I think it was before you started working there. We were okay. only in A. Because, uh, like, literally one of the train cars there was just spewing something in me. I don't remember what it was, but, like, they told us we just got to get out of there. Makes sense. <clears throat> Our CO2 things went off a couple of times fucking recently at work. Damn. <laughs> had to fucking run outside quick. Wait it out. Yeah, that wouldn't be fun. CO2, you just kind of get sleepy and then you're done. <laughs> yeah. So... First to the scene of this molasses incident were 116 cadets under the direction of Lieutenant Commander H.J. Copeland from the USS Nantucket, a training ship of the Massachusetts Nautical School that was docked nearby at the playground pier. The cadets ran several blocks towards the accident and entered into the knee-deep flood of the molasses to pull out survivors, while others worked to keep curious onlookers from getting in the way of rescuers. The Boston Police, Red Cross, Army, and Navy personnel soon arrived some nurses from the Red Cross dived into the molasses while others tended to the injured, keeping them warm and feeding the exhausted workers. Many of these people worked through the night, and the injured were so numerous that doctors and surgeons set up a makeshift hospital in the nearby building. Rescuers found it difficult to make their way through the syrup to the help the victims, and four days elapsed before they stopped searching. <laughs> Many of the dead were so glazed over in molasses they were hard to recognize. Other victims were swept out into Boston Harbor and found three to four months after the disaster. Oh, my God. In the wake of the accident, 119 residents brought a class action lawsuit against the United States Industrial Alcohol Company, or USIA, which had bought purity distilling in 1917. It was one of the first class action suits in Massachusetts and is considered a milestone in paving the way for modern corporate regulation. The company claimed that the tank had been blown up by anarchists because some of the alcohol produced was used in making munitions, but a court-appointed auditor found USIA responsible after three years of hearings, and the company ultimately paid out $628,000 in damages, or $9.82 million, and adjusted for 2021. <laughs> Relatives of those killed reportedly received around $7,000 per victim, equivalent to $109,000 in 2021. Hmm. Cleanup crews used salt water from a fireboat to wash away the molasses and sand to absorb it, and the harbor was brown with molasses until summer. And this happened like January 4th. So for six months, the harbor was brown with just molasses. <sighs> the cleanup in the immediate area took weeks, with several hundred people contributing to the effort, and it took longer to clean the rest of the greater Boston and its suburbs. Rescue workers, cleanup crews, and sightseers had tracked molasses through the streets and spread it to subway platforms, to the seats inside trains and streetcars, to pay telephone handsets, into homes, into the countless other places. It was reported that everything that a Bostonian touched was sticky. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Boston has it rough. Their fucking tea, their molasses. (laughs) Yeah, I guess pretty much there's just, like, a plaque there now. Like... That's all that's left from the Great Molasses Flood. I mean, to be fair, it's not something I'd want to remember either. Yeah. From my fucking city heritage, like... I just cannot imagine a 25-foot-tall wave of molasses. Like, just being a... Like, first off, the people who got caught up in it... Wow. 
But just like the thought of being beside it, like watching it happen, being like, what the fuck is happening right now? Like, God is angry at us. Oh my God, dude. Two million gallon, gallons of fucking and at least it was like, At least it was by the harbor. So, like, most of it just fucking, like, went out into the harbor. But still, like, it got a couple yeah. blocks. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, right, pretty much, like, right next to that is just, like, two piers. Yeah. Where, like, they would bring shit in. Yeah, makes sense. North End Beach, Charleston yeah. Bridge, so like in between there. Yep. But yeah, this like little. <laughs> yeah, from there to the ocean was fucking molasses. Jesus and Christ. And some of them, like, they're sort of like the surrounding suburbs there was all just fucking coated too. In a like, even like the area that wasn't the huge wave, two to three feet of molasses. Can you imagine how many people went down to see that shit? Like, all this area that didn't get it and fucking like, yo! <laughs> and then just fucking tracked it everywhere through the city. Oh my god. I get why they said that, like, the city smelled like molasses on a hot day then afterwards. Oh, yeah. And the fucking harbor. Yeah. All of it sitting in there. Dude. Just taking, like, a swig from the ocean and it's sweet. Wow. What a story. <laughs> I, wonder, hmm, I wonder if that'd be good, like, the saltiness from the ocean and, like, the sweetness mixing together. Ew. A nice umami. Ew. <laughs> no. No, thank you. Yeah, so I guess next we got the Ludlow Massacre. The Ludlow Massacre. Yeah, I said Cooper Wojak for the end because I figured he'd lift everyone's spirits up. Fair enough. Yeah. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be an episode if Mike didn't bring in a fucking rebellious group of fucking God knows. Well, you remember how we? You remember how we talked about the Baldwin Feltz agency? Is that the agency that came in and like bought the town? Well, that was like the in like the so the battle for. Uh, Blair Mountain? Yeah, Blair Mountain. I was going to say Butler Mountain for some reason. But that's not <laughs> it. But, uh, yeah, for the Battle of Blair Mountain, like, they were, like, the agency that was, like, to be strike breakers, basically. So, like, they were, okay. were yeah. going to come in, like, protect the new workers the company was bringing in. Yeah. And, like, harass the strikers and everything. Yeah. And, like, they were the people who gunned down, like, the mine, like, the guy who was in charge mm-hmm. of the strike on the court steps, and they never got in trouble for anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll be seeing them again. Oh, my. No, but the same people. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. These motherfuckers got around. Well, yeah, like, they, they basically, that was their entire agency. Like, they would just go around and be strike breakers for people. And then fucking they just disbanded the company, for, like, once all that was done. And then they just went about the rest of their lives. Uh, sounds like some Billy Boy shit. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone gives you a hard time, beat the fuck out of them. <laughs> <laughs> or instead of just beating the fuck out of them, they would just, like, pop shots through, like, a tent city. Like, yeah. Or that, uh, that... Armored car there. They called that like the death special or something like that. It was just literally an armored. It was like car. a makeshift wagon. Well, yeah, it's like just like a regular sedan with armored plate <laughs> on it with a fucking like howitzer on the back. Yeah, and that's what they used against strikers. <laughs> this is terrible. So the Ludlow massacre was a mass killing perpetrated by anti-striker militia during the Colorado Coalfield War. Soldiers from the Colorado National Guard and private guards employed by the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, that being the Baldwin Feltz agents, mm. attacked a tent colony of roughly 100, uh, 1,200 striking coal miners and their families in Ludlow, Colorado on April 20th of 1914. Approximately 21 people, including miners' wives and children, were killed. 21 is obviously the magic number today. <laughs> 
John D. Rockefeller Jr., part owner of CF&I, uh, who had recently appeared before a United States congressional hearing on strikes, was widely blamed for having orchestrated the massacre. Rockefeller, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, his dad had bought it and then gave it to him. Hmm. Yep. The massacre was a seminal event of the 1913 to 1914 Colorado Coalfield War, which began with a general United Mine Workers of America strike against poor labor conditions in CF&I's southern Colorado coal mines. The strike was organized by miners working for the Rocky Mountain Fuel Company and Victor American Fuel Company. Ludlow was the deadliest single incident during the Colorado Coalfield War and spurred a 10-day period of heightened violence throughout Colorado. In retaliation for the massacre at Ludlow, bands of armed miners attacked dozens of anti-union establishments, destroying property and engaging in several skirmishes with the Colorado National Guard along a 225-mile front from Trinidad to Louisville. Jesus Christ. From the strike's beginning in September of 1913 to the intervention by federal soldiers under President Woodrow Wilson's orders on April 29th of 1914, an estimated 69 to 199 people were killed during the strike. Woo! Historian Thomas G. Andrews has called it the deadliest strike in the history of the United States. And the Ludlow Massacre was a watershed moment in American labor relations. Socialist historian Howard Zinn described it as the culminating act of perhaps the most violent struggle between corporate power and laboring men in American history. So how many? Up to 190? Well, so like there was the Ludlow Massacre. Okay. That was like 21 people. It's it's really debated, but like they, they confirmed 21 people were killed. Okay. And that sparked a 10-day period of violence, which was the Colorado Coalfield okay. War. Okay, okay. Up to 199 people were okay, killed. Okay, that makes sense. So, yeah, so, yeah, the massacre is, like, the thing that sparked off the... Well, like, yeah, they had been striking and everything like that. Yeah. And then, like, they come in and, like, well, you're not going to do this anymore. And so they basically drove them <laughs> like, out. Yeah, you want to fucking bet? <laughs> yeah. We fucking will. And then that led them to just go for, like, crazy for 10 days. Over a 225-mile... Like front, yeah, Jesus, Trinidad, Colorado, and Louisville, dude, that's wild. Yeah, citizens are wild. Uh, Congress responded to public outrage by directing the House Committee on Mines and Mining to investigate the events. In its report, published in 1915, was influential in promoting child labor laws and the eight-hour workday. The Ludlow town site and the adjacent location of the tent colony, 18 miles away, northwest of Trinidad, Colorado, is now a ghost town. The massacre site is owned by the United Mine Workers of America, which erected a granite monument in memory of those who died that day. Oh, my nose is stuffed up. <laughs> Subsequent investigations immediately following the massacre and modern archaeological efforts largely support the strikers' accounts of events. So, at its peak in 1910, the coal mining industry of Colorado employed 15,864 people, or 10% of jobs in the state. Colorado's coal industry was dominated by a handful of operators. Colorado Fuel and Iron was the largest coal operator in the West and one of the nation's most powerful corporations, at one point employing over 7,000 people and controlling over 71,000 acres of coal land. Damn. John D. Rockefeller purchased a controlling stake in Colorado Fuel and Iron Company in 1902, and nine years later he turned it over his controlling interest in the company to his son, John D. Rockefeller Jr., who managed the company from his offices at 26 Broadway in New York. <laughs> I couldn't imagine interesting from across the country in 1910 feeling like a boss too 
Yeah, I mean, you're fucking, like, one of the richest men in the country. Probably, like, the world at that point, besides, like, literal kings. It's just ridiculous. Like, mining, ridiculous. Yeah. Mining was dangerous and difficult work. Colliers in Colorado were constantly threatened by explosions, suffocations, and collapsing mine work. <coughs> In 1912, the death rate in Colorado's mines was 7.055 per 1,000 employees, compared to the national rate of 3.15. In 19, so it's almost double the rate in Colorado. Oh, it's over double. Yeah, it's over double. Uh, in 1914, the United States House Committee on Mining, Mines and Mining reported, and they said, uh, Colorado has good mining laws and such that ought to afford protection to the miners as to safety in the mine if they weren't forced. Yet, in this state, the percentage of fatalities is larger than any other, showing there's undoubtedly something wrong in reference to the management of its coal mines. <laughs> we got good laws, but everyone dies. But we don't use them. Yeah, we don't care. Miners were generally paid according to the tonnage of coal produced, or so-called dead work, such as shoring up unstable roofs, was often unpaid. The tonnage system drove many poor and ambitious couriers to gamble with their lives by neglecting precautions and taking on risk, with uh, consequences that were often fatal. Between 1884 and 1912, mining accidents claimed the lives of more than 1,700 people in Colorado. In 1913 alone, 110 men died in mine-related accidents. Also, Also, many resided in company towns in which all land, real estate, and amenities were owned by the mine operator. Mm-hmm. Or, like, they got to go to the company store, they get paid yeah. in script. Yeah, we were talking about that with the other one. They fucking own everything in the town, so they don't even pay you in, like, regular money. They pay you in fucking Monopoly fucking money. Yeah, and you just got to go to their store and everything to buy their stuff from them. Yeah, so <laughs> fucking wild, dude. So wild. And this is actually, like, one of the like, things that led to, like, that being outlawed and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, all these, like, little fucking, all these different events that you keep finding, we keep talking about that fucking these strikers went out and fucking literally paid with their fucking lives to be able to even unionize and get these, like, fucking... And this is wild because they actually have the laws. Yeah, there are laws that are just not being enforced. Which is insane because most people think that it's always about the law. Like, oh, we got legislation. But, like, no, like, even now, like... It fucking proves that fucking legislation doesn't mean shit. The Roe versus Wade shit. Mm-hmm. Like, they'll fucking... That has, like, 85... Like, eight, almost 85% fucking approval across the United States. They're just like, you know what? And it's been we'll treated as that. law for 50 years now. Yeah, but it's it wild. Never it just, for some reason, just got brought back up. Like... Well, they never, like, codified it. They were just riding on it being, like, the court's decision. So... Yeah. And the court can change the decision. But that's still so fucking wild. It's fucked up. It definitely is. So fucking wild. That's why, like, a lot of, like, one of the things he went pushing for is, like, term limits on the Supreme Court. Yeah, motherfuckers. Get out of there. Yeah. Uh, so, their strike. Despite attempts to suppress union activity, the Mine Workers of America secretly continued its unionization efforts in the years leading up to 1913. Eventually, the union presented a list of seven demands. First, recognition of the union as a bargaining agent. Second, composition for digging coal at a ton rate based on 2,000 pounds. Previously, tons were rated as long tons or 2,200 pounds. Uh, three, the enforcement of the eight-hour workday law. So it's not not even like a change to it, just the enforcement. Of yeah, the law. just like yo, let us. <laughs> uh, number four is payment for dead work, such as laying track, timbering, and handling impurities. 
five which that's another thing i think is crazy is like all the extra work that has to go into it you don't get paid for you're just getting paid for the coal you bring out uh fifth was weight checkmen elected by the workers to keep company weight men honest six the right to use any store and to choose their boarding houses and doctors and seven strict enforcement of colorado's laws such as mine safety rules all ab- abolition of script and an end to the company guard system yeah <laughs> yeah, motherfuckers. I just like how half of them is just like just enforce the laws. Yeah, just yeah. enforce the laws. Uh, can we just can we just uh, have you read and abide by this? <laughs> the major coal companies rejected the demands, and in, September- <laughs> <laughs> in September of 1913, the United Mine Workers of America's coal to strike. Those who went on strike were evicted from their company homes and moved to tent villages prepared by the union. The tents were built on wooden platforms and furnished with cast iron stoves on land the Union had leased in preparation for a strike. When leasing the sites, the Union had selected locations near the mouths of canyons that led into the coal camps in order to block any strike breakers' traffic. The company hired the Baldwin Felt Detective Agency to protect the new workers and harass the strikers. And as we know, the Baldwin Felts had a reputation for aggressive strike breaking. Agents shone searchlights on the tent villages at night and fired bullets into tents at random, occasionally killing and maiming people. They used an improvised armored car mounted with a machine gun the Union called the Death Special. That's what that car picture is. This fucking ridiculous fucking piece of shit. Yeah, it's literally like a Model T with a fucking howitzer in the back. Dude, it looks like... It literally look. It doesn't even look like a Model T. It look, literally looks like plywood. <laughs> looks like a fucking... Oh, what's the fucking... This little go kart that they race. Like the plywood like box cars. Yeah, like it's fucking like soap box cars. Like look, it's just so like evenly cut. Like it just looks like someone. Why well, just like, so they can all sit down there behind the plating and just fucking pop shots off and driving around? Yeah, but it just looks like it has no frame to me. You know what I mean? It literally <laughs> looks like someone put wood on some wheels, just like just rolling it down the street. Fucking dickheads. And they would patrol the death special around the camp's perimeters confrontations between striking miners and working miners whom the union called scabs sometimes resulted in deaths frequent sniper attacks on the tent colonies drove the miners to dig pits beneath the tents to hide in armed battles also occurred between strikers and sheriffs recently deputized to suppress the strike of course and this back was- to this again <laughs> hey you want to fucking kill some people who used to live here here take a badge <laughs> <laughs> and that's what's known as the colorado coalfield war Wow, dude. So, who, who are these? Uh, is that the... That was, those are the National Guard coming in. We haven't even got there yet. Oh, Jesus. Okay. And this is uh, like... That's, that's one of the pits that was dug. On, that's, so, about, they were like camping here. Well, yeah. You they, see what that big like rectangle is like back there? That yeah. would have been like the wooden platform they built and they would have put the tent on. Okay. And then, they, and then because they were shooting through the tents, they built these underneath so they could at least like chill. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Also, because it was just hot and shit. Too. And that's just like fucking National Guard, like finding them. Yeah. They, they, this was after everything. Yeah. That, that picture was taken. Wow, man. And I mean, like they're miners. Like you don't think yeah. they're just gonna like dig a hole? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so wild. As strike-related violence mounted, clay kickers. <laughs> <laughs> Goddamn clay kickers. Where's Tommy? Tommy's somewhere <laughs> under there organizing all this shit. As strike-related violence mounted. Colorado Governor Elias M. Amons called in the Colorado National Guard on October 28th. And that's what that picture is, is the, call, the National Guard coming in on horseback. Yeah, that's okay. Which I also thought was crazy. Like, 
Just because, like, uh, like, look how far back that picture goes. Well, I mean, it's just crazy. Like, think like, a, a, like an army unit like rolling into a town on fucking horseback. You know what I mean? Like, and are they? T- and are they like on the union side, or are they fucking taking care of the agency? Oh no! Yeah, they're definitely on the side of like the mind break, the strike breakers. Wow. Yeah. A strike-related violence mounted. Colorado Governor Elias M. Amons called on the, the Colorado National Guard on October 21st. October 28th. <coughs> At first, the Guard's appearance calmed the situation, but the Guard's leader's sympathies lay with company management. Guard Adjunct General John Chase, who had served during the violent Cripple Creek strike 10 years ago, which was another, like, mine strike, like, in Colorado. <laughs> uh, he, he was just a regular soldier at the time. He wasn't, like, in charge of anything. Uh, and he imposed a harsh regime. On March 10th of 1914, a replacement worker's body was found on the railroad tracks near Forbes, Colorado. The National Guard said the strikers had murdered the man. In retaliation, Chase ordered the Forbes tent colony destroyed. The attack was launched while the residents were attending a funeral of two infant- infants who had died a few days earlier. Photographer Lou Dold witnessed the attack, and his images of the destruction often appear in accounts of the strike. The strikers persevered until spring of 1914. By then, according to historian Anthony DeStefanis, the National Guard had largely broken the strike by helping the mine operators bring in non-union workers. The state had also run out of money to maintain the Guard, and the Amons decided to recall them. He, uh, he and the mining companies, fearing a breakdown in order, left one company of Guardsmen in South Colorado. They formed a new company called Troop A, which consisted largely of Colorado Fuel and Iron Company mine camp guards and mine guards hired by Baldwin Feltz who were given National Guard uniforms. So pretty much, the state ran out of money to keep funding all the National Guard, pulled them back, they are like, we'll just give you guys a uniform so you can keep cosplaying as National Guard. Wow. So, as for the actual massacre, on the morning of April 20th of 1914, the day after some of the tech colony celebrated Orthodox Easter, three guardsmen appeared at the camp ordering the release of a man they claimed was being held against his will. The camp leader, Louis Takas, left to meet with Major Patrick J. Hamrock. <laughs> I like that name. Hamrock. <laughs> At the train station in Ludlow Village, half a mile away from the colony. While this meeting was progressing, two militias installed a machine gun on the ridge near the camp and took positions along a rail route half a mile south of Ludlow. Simultaneously, armed miners began flanking to a wash, with like a, like a creek bed, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, when two of the militia's dynamite explosions that were detonated to draw support from the National Guard units at Birdwood and Cedar Hill alerted the Ludlow tent colony. The miners took up positions at the bottom of the hill while militia opened fire. Hundreds of miners and their families ran for cover. What I mean, like, they have a machine gun at the top of the hill. Yeah. You guys are pretty fucked. Yeah. The fighting raged for the entire day. The militia was reinforced by non-uniformed mine guards later in the afternoon. At dusk, a a passing freight train stopped on the tracks in front of the guards' machine gun placements, allowing many of the miners and their families to escape to an outcropping of hills to the east called Black Hills. By 7 p.m., the camp was in flames, and the militia descended on it and began to search and loot it. Takas remained in the camp the entire day and was still there when the fire started. He and two other men were captured by the militia. Takas and Lieutenant Carl Linderfeld, commander of one of the two guard companies, had confronted each other several times in the previous months. While two militiamen held Takas, Linderfeld broke a rifle butt over his head. Takas and the other two captured miners were later found shot dead. Takas had been shot in the back. 
The bodies lay along the Colorado and Southern Railroad tracks for three days in full view of passing trains. The militia officers refused to allow them to be moved until a local the railway union demanded they be taken away for burial. And you know the only reason he did that is because people didn't like seeing them on the train tracks. Mm-hmm. That's fucking wild, man. Like, the National Guard killed three people and just left them out in front of the national in the train As tracks. a fucking as message. A war- yeah, as a warning. As a fucking message. During the battle, four women and 11 children hid in a pit beneath one tent, where they were trapped when the tent above them was set on fire. Two of the women and all of the children suffocated. The deaths became a rallying cry for the United Mine Workers of America, who called the incident the Ludlow Massacre. Julia May Courtney reported different numbers in her contemporaneous article, Remember Ludlow, for the magazine Mother Earth. She said that in addition to the men who were killed, a total of 55 women and children had died in the massacre. Damn. According to her account, the militia, quote, fired the two largest buildings, like, lit on fire. Mm-hmm. The strikers' storage and going from tent to tent poured oil on the flimsy structures, setting them on fire. From the blazing tents rushed the women and children, only to be beaten back into the fire by the rain of bullets from the militia. The men rushed to the assistance of their families, and as they did so, they were dropped by the whirring messengers of death sped by t- sped surely to the mark. The fucking National Guard. Into the cellars, the pits of hell under their blazing tents, crept the women and children, less fearful of the smoke and flames and the nameless horror of the spitting bullets. One man counted the bodies of nine little children taken from one ashy pit, their tiny fingers burned away as they held to the edge in their struggle to escape. Thugs in state uniform hacked at the lifeless forms, in some instances nearly cutting off the heads and limbs to show their contempt for the strikers. Fifty-five women and children perished in the fire of Ludlow Tent Colony. Relief parties carrying the Red Cross cross flag were driven back by the gunmen, and for 24 hours the bodies lay crisping in the ashes while rescuers vainly tried to cross the firing line. Crazy. That's fucking disgusting. Some reports say a second machine gun was brought in to support the estimated 200 guardsmen who participated in the engagement, and that a Colorado and Southern Trains operators purposely put their engine between a machine gun and the strikers as a shield against the National Guard fire. A board of Colorado military officers described the events as beginning with the killing of Tychus and other strikers in custody, like, ignoring everything else that happened up to that point. Wow. Uh, with gunfire largely emanating from the southwestern corner of the Ludlow Colony, guardsmen stationed on Water Tank Hill, the name for the machine gun position, fired into the camp. The guardsmen reporting having seen women and children withdrawing the morning before the battle and said they thought the strikers would not have begun firing if they had women still with them. The board's official reportedly commended the, quote, truly heroic behavior of Linderfeld, the guardsman, and the militia during the battle, and blamed the strikers for any civilian casualties during the engagement, despite those killed being family members of the strikers. The report also blamed the looting that occurred afterward, quote, on Troop A, a unit composed of largely non-uniformed mine guards who had been integrated into the guard. In addition to the miners and their reg- and their family members, three regular members of the National Guard and one other militiaman was reported killed in the day's fighting. However, modern historians assert that only one of the militia's number, a private named Martin of the National Guard, was killed. Martin was fatally shot in the neck, presumably by strikers. And then in the aftermath became uh, the Ten Day War, which we talked about. Mm-hmm. That's fucking wild, man. It's crazy. What a story. And it's the same thing with, like, the Battle of Blair Mountain. At least they didn't use airplanes, though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just... 
They probably, I think they caught more bodies in this one, don't you think? Yeah, I think, yeah. Innocence, too. It's wild. Like, so many fucking women and children died. It's fucking wild, yo. The National Guard. Yeah. The National fucking Guard. Hey, we just need you to uh, go clear out this tent colony. Yeah, thanks. That is unbelievable. Better believe it. <coughs> Fucking happen. So sad. You want to talk about Corporal Voitek now? Let's. <laughs> you called him three different names. I have. I've no idea. Voltek, Voltek, and Voitek. It's spelled W O J T E K. But apparently it's pronounced V-O-Y-T-E-K. I'm not even trying it. <laughs> so, in the Spro Bear. <laughs> it's also the newest story. The what? The newest story. Like, it was 19, like, 12, then 1914. And now it's 1942. Ooh. <laughs> So, in the spring of 1942, the newly formed Anders Army left the Soviet Union for Iran, which is uh, the Polish Army, uh, accompanied by thousands of Polish civilians who had been deported to the Soviet Union following the 1939 Soviet invasion of eastern Poland. At a railroad station in Hamadan, Iran, on the 8th of April, 1942, Polish soldiers encountered a young Iranian boy who had found a bear cub whose mother had been shot by hunters. One of the civilian refugees in their midst, 18-year-old Irina Bokowitz, was very taken with the cub. She prompted Lieutenant Antal Tarnawaki to buy the young bear, which spent the next three months in a Polish refugee camp established near Tehran. And in August, the bear was donated to the Second Transport Company, which later became the 22nd Artillery Supply Company. <laughs> Just donate a bear to a company. And he was named Wojtek by the soldiers. The name, uh, and the name is a nickname of Wojtrzyk, which means happy warrior, an old Slavic name still common in Poland. Hmm. So the bear is named Happy Warrior. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He apparently initially had problems swallowing and was fed condensed milk from an old vodka bottle. He was subsequently given fruit, marmalade, honey, and syrup, and was often rewarded with beer, which became his favorite drink. You got this fucking bear to be an alcoholic. They said they would also give him cigarettes, but, like, they would put it in his mouth and, like, light it, but he wouldn't, like, smoke it. He would just, like, eat it. Ew. <laughs> Man. Uh, as well as drinking coffee in the mornings. He also slept with the other soldiers if they were ever cold at night. He enjoyed wrestling with the soldiers and was taught to salute when greeted. He became an attraction for soldiers and civilians alike. What? And soon became an unofficial mascot to all the units stationed nearby. With the 22nd Company, he moved to Iraq and then through Syria, Palestine, and Egypt. What the fuck? What? He's just a part of this company. What? Bro. Like, <laughs> you just grab a bear and tame it? Like, yeah. Uh, he occupied the soldiers drinking beer, smoking, and even marching alongside them on his hind legs because he saw them do so. Wojtek had his own caregiver assigned to look after him, and the cub grew up while on campaign, and by the time the Battle of Monte Cassino, he weighed 90 kilograms, or 200 pounds. <laughs> From Egypt, the Polish Two Corps was assigned to fight alongside the British Eighth Army in the Italian campaign, and regulations for British transport ship, which was to carry them to Italy, forbid mascot and pet animals, 
To get around the subscription, he was officially drafted into the Polish army as a private. Officially drafted. And listed among the other soldiers of the second of the 22nd Artillery Supply Company. That's insane. <laughs> he was an enlisted soldier with his own pay book, rank, and serial number. Put in more work than those other fucking guards, man. Who's getting the who's getting the bear's pay? That's my question. You think they just like spend it to like buy him food and stuff? Probably. <laughs> Room and board. Uh, he lived with the other men in tents or on a special wooden crate, which was transported by truck. During the Battle of Monte Cassino, he helped his unit to convey ammunition by carrying a hundred pound crates of twenty five pound artillery shells, never dropping any of them. That's what like really like, caused him to like get all this fame. This was like during the battle, he literally picked up the boxes, was carrying them for him. <laughs> <laughs> it's a video game character Well this story generally uh, Generated controversy over its accuracy At least one account exists of a British soldier Recalling seeing a bear carrying crates of ammo <laughs> <laughs> The bear mimicked soldiers And when he saw the men lifting crates he copied them Wotek carried boxes That normally required four men Which he would stack onto a truck or other ammunition boxes the service at Monte Cassino earned him promotion from the rank of, of corporal, and in recognition of his popularity, a depiction of the bear carrying artillery show was adopted as the official emblem of the 22nd Company. <laughs> All these pictures are so fucking. Yeah, they just they just had a bear. They trained him, and, and that next one is the box of sh- of shells he carried. He would just pick them up and carry them. <laughs> like what? <laughs> like- and that's like the flag then. What kind of fucking witchery is this? Like, <laughs> fucking tame a bear to carry fucking. And no one shot it. <laughs> no one shot the bear carrying well, the ammunition. They, were, they weren't really at the front off, and they were a supply company, and they did like artillery. So they'd be like way in the back. I'd still. At the end of World War II in 1945, he was transported to Berkshire, Scotland with the rest of the 22nd Company. They were stationed at Winfield Airfield on Sunwick Farm near the village of Hutton, Scottish Borders. Wojtek soon became popular among local civilians in the press, and the Polish-Scottish Association made him an honorary member. <laughs> <laughs> like, what the... Like, all these... Like, now that you're telling me the story and I'm seeing all these pictures, I'm just like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, he just... I mean, he was raised by this company, like, literally, like, ever since he was a cub, they've been, he's just been with these people, and he just saw what they did and copied them. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's how animals learn. I know, but it's just so, like, it's just so funny. That, there was so many more pictures of statues of him around the world, and I only put, like, four of them on here. There was at least, like, ten of them. Wow. Yeah. I mean, rightfully so. Following demobilization on the 15th of November in 1947, Wojtek was given to the Edinburgh Zoo, where he spent the rest of his life, often visited by journalists and former Polish soldiers, some of whom tossed cigarettes for him to eat. (laughs) What the fuck? As he did during his time in the army. (laughs) I mean, they knew. They were like, he wants a stogie, bro. (laughs) But he's just eating it. He still wants a stogie. Doesn't matter what he's doing with it, he still wants one. Oh my god. Uh... (laughs) Media attention contributed to Wojtek's popularity. He was a frequent guest on BBC television Blue Peter program for children. And then he died in December of 1963 at the age of 21, weighing nearly 1,100 pounds. Holy fuck! And standing at over 5'11". 
What? <laughs> yeah. Dude, that's only two fucking inches higher than me. <laughs> and fucking 900 pounds more. <laughs> Holy fuck. Yeah, that's, that's Corporal Wojtek. Corporal, yeah. Make, a, a fucking bear makes his way to Corporal. <laughs> yeah. A bear. Wow. That yep. was that was a more cheerful story. Uh, this guy I follow on TikTok that does like little random like history things. Like I saw that on there. I was like, I, yeah, I gotta talk about it. It's so funny. <laughs> That's wild. Just picking up boxes of fucking shells, just carrying them. Literally, video game character. <laughs> well, I said they would march. Like he would march with them, like on his hind legs, and salute them yeah. when addressed. <laughs> just like a whole bear just like walking around like just casually around a military base like no like <laughs> no one's worried about anything like oh, he's a soldier you imagine being outranked by a bear yeah bro <laughs> oh my god you literally have to listen to a bear there's probably men who got made fun of for that Ooh. Like 100%. <laughs> like, you bro, do what the bear said, right? You do what the bear said. What do you mean he can't talk? I don't care. You fucking wait for him to talk. You do what he said. <laughs> By some act of God, he does say something. You better do it. <laughs> <laughs> what a fucking... What a story. What all of them are really like... The molasses fly, a 25 foot wave, 35 mile per hour molasses, fucking wild. Yeah, I mean, the tank was like 50 feet by 90 feet or something like that. Like, Boston really has it rough with their fucking. Yeah, Boston molasses don't get along. Yeah. Their kitchenware. Nope, nope. I'll find one. Nope. No, you won't. I got it. You fucker. <laughs> One of them is loose. Yeah, they don't. Have, they don't have luck with their kitchenware. Fucking <laughs> asshole! Asshole strikers, <laughs> or sorry, asshole fucking strike breakers. Yeah, I just can't fucking just popping shots through a tent, like, and then burning it all, and then shooting the people trying to run away from it. Like, it's like. <laughs> It's like fictional villain shit. Yeah, like, there's still people, like, just because they're not working in your mind, like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. You've already driven them out of their homes and given them to other people. Why do you gotta kill them? No, 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 no. Also, for some reason, like, they kept mentioning Greek specifically. Like, Greek strikers. I don't know if there's, like, a lot of, like, Greek people that moved to Colorado, or if, like, this article was just kind of, like, biased against Greek people. That's weird. Yeah, that's why I took it out. I was like, I don't know. It's just, yeah. Okay. It just kept calling them specifically the Greek strikers. What? That's so weird. Why? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if Colorado's, like... You didn't look into it? No. I thought it was just the article being kind of racist. Might have to look this up later. Figure <laughs> out what the. We might have to come back to this and figure out what the fuck was going on. So yeah, whenever you just said that, I was just like, mm, just take that out. Yeah, we don't need to worry about that. 
sad either way. Yeah. It's fucked up. Don't be afraid of your government people. They always have your best interest in mind. <laughs> always. You could back down that mind. <laughs> you back down that mine and you don't get fucking paid for it like a good fucking miner. Yeah, that's one of the crazy. Like you, your son, his son, and his son. You're not getting paid to like shore up the walls of the mine. Like what the fuck? Yeah, dude. I mean, like we need the mine if we're gonna keep mining coal. Like you need yeah. the mine to still be there, not just collapse. If you get to keep mining the coal that's there, yeah, dude, it's it just seems in your best interest to keep the mine stable and not collapsed. Yeah, no, apparently yeah. not. No, 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 no. <laughs> what do I know? You don't got to worry about that. You gotta, that's what the workers. <laughs> yeah, do. you're in New York. They're in Colorado. Fuck <laughs> it. Yeah, fuck them. <laughs> they gotta worry about if it collapses. They gotta build another one. That's their job. Just keep digging, boys. Don't mind the corpses. Just keep digging. Yeah, dig over them real quick. Actually, you can use them for the wood to <laughs> fucking hold up the tunnel. Ceiling supported by, like, thigh bones and stuff. Oh, my God. Terrible. Terrible, terrible, terrible. And Corporal... Wojtek. Wojtek. Cigarette-eating... God, I don't even know what I'm going to... Drink coffee in the morning, beer in the evening. I don't know what I'm going to call this episode. <laughs> <clears throat> well, fuck, I think it's been another good episode of Rooney Talk. I'm Bud Walker. Mike McCloskey. And that's it. <laughs> we'll see you next week, kids. Get the fuck out of here. What are you still doing here? What the fuck are you still doing here? Go. Uh-huh. Which, go. <laughs> the next... The next episode is that way. (laughs) Just click the button. That's just my personal rant, Liz, my pussy.